Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 8th of December, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott. It's very confusing to have David on on a Wednesday. Indeed, but he'll be bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Uh, we'll get straight on with uh, with things. And uh, well, first of all, Sajid Javid, uh, who was missing in action this morning. Uh, apparently, uh, he decided that he wouldn't do his uh, his uh, media appearances uh, this morning. So the BBC decided to empty chair him. Uh, so And they also pushed out a tweet saying, uh, there was no government minister available to speak to BBC Breakfast at 7.30 this morning. It follows the video uh, showing, sorry, emerging showing senior number 10 staff joking about holding a Christmas party at Downing Street last year. Now, in the little video clip underneath here, they do specifically say that they were expecting Javid uh, to appear. So there's a bit of panic in the uh, Tory hierarchy. Seems that way, if it's for real, but uh, it seems that way. And also Vaccines Minister Maggie Throop was supposed to be doing a round, uh, a round of regional television interviews. And of course, this is because today, Brian, is one the, the first anniversary of the rollout of the vaccine. So that's uh, fantastic news, isn't it? No. Right. Uh, and uh, well, in the meantime, then, uh, what have we got here? Well, the BBC saying that uh, Charles and Camilla urge hesitance uh, to get the booster jab. And let's just get the, uh, the quote that I want to pull out of this. Uh, we can only urge you to look at the evidence in our intensive care wards. People who are unvaccinated are at least 10 times more likely to be hospitalized or die than those who have had two vaccine doses. Well, this is the uh, narrative that's being pushed out. And similarly, uh, from the likes of uh, uh, Hillary uh, Jones here, who was on uh, uh, the um, Lorraine program yesterday, um, there's, there is really a figure we really need to concentrate on. 90% of people in hospital have not been vaccinated. So this is the claim. 90% of people in hospital have not been vaccinated. The claim is clearly nonsense. Um, but nonetheless, uh, more other people have been commenting uh, that it's 90% of people in uh, intensive care and, and so on. So let's have a look at the actual uh, figures here. And uh, it's really hard to get actual figures, uh, of course. Uh, and we'll show that as we go through this. But let's have a look at the COVID-19 vaccine surveillance report for week 48. This is the latest one. Uh, and what we have here is, uh, first of all, uh, COVID-19 cases presenting to emergency care within 28 days of a positive specimen, resulting in an overnight uh, inpatient admission by vaccination status between week 44 and week 47. So the first thing to say here is, uh, this is cases based on PCR tests. But the other thing is that this is cases or people that are presenting to emergency care within 28 days of a positive specimen. Well, uh, most people uh, are required to self-isolate uh, should they have symptoms uh, for 10 days. So what actual benefit is to know, is it to know that, uh, that they've appeared in hospital 28 days following uh, uh, a, a positive specimen, a positive PCR test, because that could be completely unrelated. Uh, and this is part of the problem, but nonetheless, uh, look at what we have here uh, in the not vaccinated column uh, under 18s. Well, they're well above uh, the people, the column with, at the end there with uh, people with second doses. But as we head towards the 30 uh, age group or the 40 age group, we start to get uh, quite similar numbers uh, until when we get to the over 80s, we find that uh, there are many more people 
uh, in hospital as a result uh, or that, that are fully vaccinated rather than people that, uh, that aren't. Um, so clearly the, the uh, rhetoric from the likes of Hillary Jones and from Prince Charles uh, is nonsense. It's a fear tactic. Uh, but I also wanted to um, highlight this table from the same document. Uh, unadjusted rates of COVID-19 infection, hospitalizations and death in vaccinated and unvaccinated populations. <coughs> Excuse me. And on the left-hand side there, um, you can see that quite clearly, <coughs> excuse me, um, I'm going to need to take a drink, sorry, because I've got something stuck. Um, but on the, on the left-hand column there, you can see quite clearly that um, if we look at unadjust, unadjusted rates amongst people vaccinated with two doses, um, actually those numbers, um, you know, they're quite a lot higher in many cases, uh, depending on the age range than those that are unvaccinated. But then what we find is that when we start looking at hospitalizations and deaths, um, we see that uh, the numbers are much higher for the unvaccinated. So why could that be? <coughs> well, one, David will be coming on to one potential reason for that uh, in a second. But just before we uh, end this little segment, I wanted to highlight um, this because this um, blog post published a few weeks ago now, but, but came from the same person that uh, uh, push, pushed out that first tweet I was showing. Uh, most in critical care unvaccinated, not according to the data. And uh, this was the key graph here that I wanted to show um, because actually up until, several, you know, this is, as I say, several weeks ago, but up until that point, uh, the number of people in critical care with COVID-19 or at least um, uh, labeled as COVID-19 was, was a, for quite a small proportion of the total number. And actually, if we look at the uh, all-cause mortality, we see that sort of reflected in those figures as well. So, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so uh, um, I do apologize for that, but uh, um, the point here is that there is nothing in any of the statistics, as far as we can see, that justifi justifies the statements from Prince Charles or from Hillary Jones. Well, absolutely. I mean, Prince Charles, of course, has been uh, dragged into the fray because people think that as a royal family celebrity, people are going to pay attention to what he says. I hope people don't pay attention to what he says because he's got nothing productive to say. If he wants to talk about something, he could explain why Prince Andrew hasn't yet been brought in front of a court. Well, indeed. So the question then is, um, in the uh, second table that I showed there, uh, where it uh, showed that uh, people were uh, hospitalized and dying at much higher levels in the unvaccinated column than in the vaccinated column. The question is, how do we explain this? Uh, now, we don't necessarily have enough data to explain it, but uh, David, uh, perhaps Professor Norman Fenton gives us a clue. Yes, uh, Professor Fenton, he is uh, a British mathematician and he's a professor of risk information management at Queen Mary University of London. Um, and uh, so he's, he's extremely qualified to look at uh, the, the statistics and he's looking principally at the most reliable statistics, which we've always um, pointed this out, uh, which are all-cause mortality figures. Uh, but before we get to that, he's commenting here on the claims from the NHS. He received a, a, a communication from the NHS which said 8 out of 10 patients ill in hospital with COVID aren't fully vaccinated, right? and then promoting the vaccination. He said, I just got this. He said, you have to understand what the definitions now are. 
not fully vaccinated. Fully vaccinated now means at least 14 days since the third jab, not less than 14, at least 14 since the third jab, and between at least 14 days and less than six months from the second jab. That's the current definition of fully vaccinated. Anyone else is not fully vaccinated. And he comments, the eight out of 10 figure is probably about right, but is totally misleading. Less than one out of 10 have had no vaccination. Right. So, 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 that, so the question then actually is, in the, uh, in the surveillance report that we showed, are they labeling people that are, by that definition, actually is unvaccinated rather than not fully vaccinated? It, it's not clear. Yes, so the, the, what's happening is the, the definitions are being monkeyed with. Um, the, it's not at all clear. It's, it's being done in the dark so that the figures are put out are done for effect to promote the vaccination program, not to inform the public. And when you dig into what the actual definitions are, this story is completely different. But it gets worse. Uh, so we've got some clips now from Professor Fenton. Uh, this went out on uh, Radio 4 uh, in the BBC, surprisingly. We've got three short clips from an interview, um, and he's looking at the statistics and what the real story of the statistics on all-cause mortality actually are. Hi, thanks. Yes, our team spent lots of time analysing publicly available data on COVID. And we're continually finding, actually, that the official messages you hear about both the scale of the problem and the effectiveness of interventions, especially now vaccines, are massively exaggerated. So when it comes to the vaccine, ultimately, the only truly objective way to evaluate its overall risk benefit is to compare the all-cause mortality for the vaccinated against the unvaccinated. So in crude terms, if the virus is as dangerous as claimed and the vaccine is as effective as claimed, then we should by now have data confirming that the vaccine is saving a lot more lives than it's killing. So basically, the Office of National Statistics have been publishing data on the England mortality of vaccinated against unvaccinated. And we've done this detailed analysis of their most recent report. So that's what my colleague Martin Neal was tweeting about. Now, interestingly, superficially, when you look at the data there, it actually suggests some support for vaccine effectiveness, at least in the older age groups. There's some doubt about the younger age group because it's too wide and it was too confounded by age. But we found so many inconsistencies and anomalies in the data that when you take account of the most obvious explanations for these, there really is no reliable evidence that the vaccines reduce all-cause mortality. In fact, if you take account of the fact that newly vaccinated people who die are likely being misclassified as unvaccinated, because that's the most likely explanation for the strange things in the data, then you get to the conclusion that the vaccines don't seem to be reducing all-cause mortality, but rather produce a genuine spike in all-cause mortality shortly after vaccination. So... I'm happy to talk about what the anomalies in the data are, which lead to this. So uh, I'd, I'd like to come to that, but just to clarify what you've said, you've said that, that the vaccines, the evidence is indicating a spike in all-cause mortality after vaccination. Yeah, it occurs shortly after the, the initial big rollout of the vaccination programme. Uh, David, just to clarify, that was LBC, not Radio 4. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Yes, LBC, and this is uh, Majid Nawaz. Um, was uh, was putting that out, uh, was, was conducting the interview. Um, so, uh, so a couple of key points there. 
obviously the, the, the vaccination is producing a spike in all-cause mortality. Now, we've been reporting on this for um, many, many months when the vaccine rollout first happened in Scotland uh, in, in old folks' homes and with very elderly. Uh, there was an immediate doubling in the death rate in that demographic um, it, it, in, a, in a wave that, that, that filled the two to three weeks after the vaccination programme commenced. Uh, this has been reflected all around the world. We've seen this multiple times. So the, the information he's putting forward there, we, we are confident that that's correct. Um, he mentioned the, the, the ONS data and he's, he's saying that he couldn't really make anything of the younger age group. Now, we've reported on this as well. The younger age group is uh, it's shown two to two and a half times the, the total mortality for the twice vaccinated compared with the unvaccinated. But the difficulty is that they've lumped everyone from 10 years old to 59 into one grouping. Um, and it makes it very difficult to sort out the age effects from the vaccine effects. So he, he wasn't looking uh, specifically at that data. He was looking at, at where there was more detailed, more granularity, and he could look at each age cohort in turn and look at how the, the all-cause mortality responded to the vaccine rollout. And what he was saying, seeing was the vaccine rollout um, was immediately followed by a spike in mortality. Uh, we've got uh, another couple of clips if, if you want to move on to the next one. So what we're seeing in the data is that the unvaccinated seem to be dying after not getting the first dose and the single dose are dying after not getting the second dose. And of course, a simple explanation for why you see such a pattern is that the vaccinated who die within 14 days of vaccination are simply being categorised as unvaccinated. And there's a similar thing occurring after the second dose. There are lots of other things as well, which you, you know the data, that there has to be adjustments. Right. So let, let, let me pass that out. So if I can pass that out, you're, you're saying that what you found is that actually where there has been a death within 14 days of the first dose or 14 days of the second dose of the vaccine, that is being recorded as an unvaccinated death when actually it's within 13, 14 days of a dose. Exactly. Yeah, they're, they're, it's being miscategorized. Uh, and so there's other completely weird things, like you find that the peaks in the COVID mortality data for the unvaccinated are actually inconsistent with the actual COVID way. There are these peaks which are occurring in the unvaccinated at the time when the vaccination rollout is at its peak. Right. So indicating that perhaps they've had a jab already and they're being classified as unvaccinated, but they've actually had a jab. It's a misclassification problem. And the thing is, whatever the explanations for the observed data, it's clearly both unreliable and misleading. So again, he's, he's emphasising here that we've got unreliable data, it's misleading data. People are being mischaracterised as as being unvaccinated when in fact it's the vaccination that is killing them. And this is skewing the data, but it but this but the fingerprint of this is visible. So it's so it's it's possible to make reasonable corrections for this effect, and that gets a different picture. And that's what the final clip uh, goes into. David, if, uh... We believe that the most likely explanations are the systematic miscategorization. And if that miscategorization were to be corrected, if the miscategorization were to be corrected, if somebody dying within 14 days of the first jab or 14 days of the second jab were to be defined and categorized as dying after a vaccination or after a jab as opposed to dying unvaccinated, what would be then the correct conclusion for the public and media to draw about the vaccines? 
that there's no evidence for their efficacy when it's measured by what we think is the only sensible way to measure it or cause mortality. And if anything, look. I, and I, I think that was an edit, because I think what he was perhaps going to say is, if anything, it's causing more death. But he, that wasn't what was broadcast. It was, there was a cut there. But the, the key point is, based on all-cause mortality figures, there's no evidence that the vaccines are effective. Yes. Uh, David, I just wanted to remind our audience that the ONS has not uh, replied yet to the Freedom of Information request for data of their relationship with full fact. Uh, a few, few uh, days ago, we identified that the ONS uh, was supplying people to work with full fact. And of course, full fact is defending the government's uh, statistics hand over fist. So uh, we wait to see whether the ONS is going to reply. The, the, this is absolutely critical because everything that's done, all the laws that have been passed, all the statutory instruments, every um, nudge uh, by, by, this, by SAGE and by um, um, psychological means, every statement by every official, every politician to encourage people or coerce people into getting the job, all of it becomes criminal if the jobs are harmful and they, they know or they should have known. So this is as vital uh, to, the, to the discussion of COVID as anything possibly can be. Um, and that brings us, David, to the uh, government, government of Bermuda and uh, a statement on the AstraZeneca vaccine. Now, of course, uh, government of Bermuda is now a republic, no longer uh, governed via the United Kingdom, but uh, nonetheless, here we go. Yes, so there's a reason that this is from the government of Bermuda because it, one of, it was a, a, a very excellent UK column researcher that found this many months ago uh, in the UK documentation. I couldn't find it any longer in uh, UK government documentation. I had to go to Bermuda to get this. They're talking about the AstraZeneca vaccine and under safety, the comment as follows. Extremely rare cases of blood clots with low levels of platelets have been observed following vaccination with COVID-19 AstraZeneca. The majority of these cases occurred within the first 14 days following vaccination, but some have also been reported after that period. Some were life-threatening or had a fatal outcome. So that's an official document admitting that, that some people were killed by the vaccine. And that was the first document that we saw that actually said that very plainly and very clearly. And we got this in, it was around June we spotted this, um, and I wrote to many people, including the MHRA. Everyone else I wrote to said, we don't know, we can't answer your question, but the MHRA will. So uh, this is what I wrote to them. Dear sirs, since it's now acknowledged, the package leaflet letter that the COVID vaccination program can in some cases result in the death of the patient, and I quote uh, that uh, document that I just read out earlier, uh, the justification for the continued use of the AstraZeneca vaccine is based on objective statistical quantitative risk assessment. Quote, it is important to remember that the benefits of the vaccination to give protection against COVID-19 still outweigh any potential risks, end quote. Therefore, please provide the full calculations, evidence basis and supporting documentation that demonstrate the relative risk from COVID-19 for the various sectors, sections of the population before and after vaccination and compares those risks to the risks from the vaccination programme. So that was dated 24th of June. Um, and I immediately got 
An automated reply. Thank you for your email. We'll get back to you. I've now got, I think, four of these automated replies as I've um, renewed my request for MHRA to comment. And uh, five months on, gentlemen, I'm afraid I'm still waiting for any substantive answer. Yes, and uh, of course, just to clarify, uh, it wasn't Opera Muda, it was Barbados that just became a republic, so uh, I got that completely wrong. But uh, anyway, let's move on. Well, OK, let's uh, move on to UK Columns uh, Yellow Card System, because this is still the only searchable database of the UK government vaccine adverse reaction data. So remember, if you want to have a look at any particular uh, reaction from the vaccines, you can come to UK Column, look for the yellow card uh, image which is on screen and uh, you'll be led through to a database and you can search for yourself. Well, if the MHRA says it's there to protect the public, what has it really been up to? We've been focusing on their board meetings and we got particularly interested in the most recent board meeting where as we've got thousands dying and we'll confirm those statistics in a minute, but we've got thousands dying. If you want to know what's really important to the MHRA, they're panicking about if they've got enough money to keep their operation running. So on screen is a captured image from their latest board meeting, and it shows John Fundry, the chief operations officer. Uh, this is the reality now. We've got 1,298,807 vaccine adverse reactions logged by the MHRA. They've also logged 1,814 deaths. But the MHRA is not worried about that. It's not investigating those adverse reactions and deaths. They're worried that they can't spend 15 million fast enough. Uh, so if we uh, bring in uh, the key uh, man, here he is. Uh, one of his statements is we've currently got an available balance of about 14 or 15 million. He's not sure the odd million, it doesn't matter, thinks it's about 14 or 15. And uh, bring in the next one here. Will they be able to address all of that? He means, can we spend all of that? And uh, finally, probably not, but we are attempting to use it sensibly for justifiable purposes. Does that indicate, David, that some of it's being used for purposes which are not justifiable? Justifiable purposes. Um, when you're talking about spending 15 million uh, pounds of public money, it does seem a tad vague to me, Brian. Uh, well, we, we know that they're not spending it in investigating their own yellow guard adverse reactions. So it'll be interesting to see what they are going to spend it on. But my best guess is it will be on the transformation of the MHRA to become the global unit for monitoring vaccine safety, which is a bit of an irony because they're not doing that in the first place. Um, so if we just move, move on to this one, we're going to encourage people to read this very important book. Now, this is uh, uh, this is part of the UK Health Security Agency, and this is the book that's got all of the detailed information about vaccines and vaccinations. So call this up on the internet and read it because it's really astonishing to see. This is the Green Book, is it? This is called the Green Book, yes. yeah. Um, so call it up on the internet, NHS Green Book, the Green Book, and you'll find it. Uh, so we've just pulled out a few sections, but here under safety, it says that local reactions at the injection site are fairly common. Uh, pain, a bit of redness and swelling. You get the general idea. It's playing everything down. 
If we come to pregnant women, it gets uh, pretty interesting. It says the risk to pregnant women and neonates following COVID-19 infections generally low. So nothing to worry about. Um, uh, but if we come on to this one here, it's uh, now telling us which are the, uh, which are the vaccines that uh, women should be using. And if we come on to this one here, uh, it gets very interesting because having encouraged the pregnant women to be vaccinated, we now find that it says here, as with most pharmaceutical products, large clinical trials of COVID-19 vaccine in pregnancy have, quote, not been carried out. So we're encouraging women to use a vaccine for which trials have not been carried out. And if we go down the bottom, it says, although clinical trials on the use of COVID-19 vaccines during pregnancies are not advanced, the available data do not indicate any harm to pregnancy. So we haven't done the trials, we haven't got sufficient data, but we're going to tell you that it's safe. This is outrageous and dangerous propaganda by the NHS uh, and the UK Health Security Agency. And David, these people really need to be brought into court. Yes, and this uh, available data line, we've covered this in the past. Um, the available data says everything's fine. And the available data was a small sample. And it, and it basically said, well, the rate of miscarriage was as much the same as you would expect. But uh, what it didn't look at is uh, the nature of the sample, because they were mostly getting uh, sampling from pregnant women who were outside of the first trimester, uh, where the uh, risk of miscarriage is enormously reduced. If you corrected for that, as we did, we were getting at least twice, um, and maybe as much as four times, uh, the risk of miscarriage or spontaneous abortion. Uh, so we looked at the data and we thought the data was blinking red. Um, these people looked at the data, these experts looked at the data and said everything is fine. Uh, well, thank, thank you for that. Let's reinforce that point and look at this one. Uh, it's no data for vaccine co-administration, although no data for co-administration of COVID-19 vaccine with other vaccines exists. In the absence of such data, first principles would suggest that interference between inactivated vaccines and different antigenic content is likely to be limited. So we've got no safety trials or data. And what are they saying? Just go ahead and mix the vaccines. Anybody who believes a word that's coming out of the British government on vaccine safety, I think, needs their head examined. Uh, but we've got another layer which we have to get through. Here's Andrew Neil. Uh, he's getting very hot under the collar at the moment and threatening to sue uh, most of the world. Uh, but on the subject of jabs, he says this, I've had my third jab, all Pfizer, and I strongly recommend everybody do the same. I've also seen how well vaccine passports work. I don't believe in mandatory vaccination, but if you don't get jabbed, you need to realise there are consequences on where you can go. Has this man read any of this data and statistics and the green book that we're referring to? I don't think so because he hasn't done his homework. But here's more of the damage to the sports world that's been sent to me by several people. Ben Magden uh, from uh, Barossa Valley, South Africa, living in Melbourne, playing southeast Melbourne Phoenix. He said he ended up in the emergency room on Wednesday night after taking the second Pfizer shot. 
diagnosed with pericarditis. The doctor said this is now common after the Pfizer shot. It's common, especially with teenage boys and young males. So I'll just end this section by again putting up, if you want to know what the question is that the MHRA has to answer, it's simply this, where is the quantitative risk assessment data and report which demonstrates that the MHRA's yellow card vaccine adverse reports are not the result of vaccine adverse effects? That is the only question anyone needs to ask the government, government ministers, the MHRA, the Commission on Human Medicines, the NHS, or indeed the pharmaceutical companies themselves? Where is the data which shows that the adverse re reports that have been collected are not the result of the vaccines themselves? So we'll put a red tab on there. Any and every one of our audience today is capable of asking that question politely in writing. And uh, a few hundred thousand or a million of these uh, questions, I think, would have an effect. Um, so, David, let's uh, move to Sweden. And Swedish study shows COVID vaccines drop below zero efficacy on spread by about 200 days. Yes, uh, like all uh, good information uh, on the ineffectiveness of vaccines, we're now looking at uh, blogs uh, to highlight this, this information. Uh, Professor Fenton, incidentally, is finding it quite hard to get published since he uh, discovered things that were not in accordance with the COVID narrative. Um, so I, I, I was, this was highlighted by a blog. I did pull the original paper as an extract uh, on this slide from the original paper, which reads, uh, a main result from the present study is the waning vaccine effectiveness against, against symptomatic infection. We found that following the peak in the first month, the effectiveness after four months declined to 47% and 71% respectively for the two vaccine types looked at. From seven months onward, one of these vaccine types uh, the eff effectiveness could no longer be detected. Um, and you see the, the text written across that quote there, uh, that in full says this is a, a, a pre-release, it's not yet been subject to peer review. Uh, but uh, still the information uh, strongly suggests that the, that the vaccine effectiveness, effectiveness declines dramatically and declines indeed in some cases to zero. Um, and this obviously uh, ties in with the information before about the fact that if you've got harm and you've got very low effectiveness, the net difference shown in the all-cause mortality statistics is either no benefit at all or actual harm being done to the population by the vaccination programme. Um, this uh, next slide is to show the nature of the, the ongoing battle over the information. Uh, Good Morning Britain put out a... a a tweet with a poll uh, with Omicron cases doubling every two days. Is it time to make vaccines mandatory? Now, obviously, the way that question is written, they're trying to promote the answer yes. And the great British public came back and said no, 89% no. And, and you know, the, the poll then disappeared. It was gone. The tweet was deleted because it wasn't saying uh, what, uh, what was wanted. And David, that was 44,533 votes. So that wasn't a couple of hundred people replying to that poll. No, it was massive. An excellent point, Brian. There's a massive response. And the massive response was, no, we don't want the compulsory vaccines. Um, now, 
Also on social media here, we see our, our own regular contributor, Bruce Scott, um, has, has raised this. Um, this is a, a tweet from a doctor uh, who, who writes, a lot of countries have restrictions on those who choose to put vulnerable people at risk. She means people who don't get vaccinated, choose not to get vaccinated. I suggest community service, which is a sentence, for repeated refuseniks. Um, and uh, Bruce Scott replies, community service for vaccine refuseniks. Some uh, uh, site types have obviously been in a coma for nearly two years. Um, he's questioning the, the, the logic of this. I'm also very um, puzzled by the language. Refuseniks. Refuseniks were people trapped in the Soviet Union who were not allowed to emigrate. The refuseniks were the victims of the totalitarian state in the Soviet Union. Isn't it odd that the same word is being used for people who decline a vaccine? Hmm. Yes. Okay. Well, that brings us on to uh, a definition. Well, yes. Um, this was something that was highlighted by Paul Joseph Watson on his on his Twitter feed. Um, Merriam-Webster, there's a lot of definitions been changed. The very definition of vaccine has changed so that the COVID um, uh, treatment, um, the gene therapy, can now be called a vaccine because it, it, it didn't meet the definition before. Well, it's not the only definition that's been changed. Here, the definition of anti-vaxxer has been changed. A person who opposes the use of vaccines or regulations mandating vaccination. So if you think I want to be vaccinated, but I think it should be everyone's choice, I think consent is essential. Otherwise, it's a war, it's a, it's a crime against humanity. If you think that, but you're enthusiastic about vaccine, I'm sorry, you're now by definition an anti-vaxxer and will be pilloried in the press accordingly. Um, and uh, we've got a few, a few other bits of information that are surfacing. This is just a, a small sample of what's circulating in social media, circulating around the internet. Here we've got um, uh, Lisa uh, commenting a photograph of, of someone with uh, huge blotches on their skin. Uh, and she comments, a friend of mine after AstraZeneca, don't tell me it's 100% safe for everyone. Doctors confirmed it was a jab. I would have to say I've seen these marks on people's arms immediately after receiving the AstraZeneca jab personally. So I believe that is accurate. Uh, and of course, it gets a lot worse than marks on skin. Here we have a BBC reporting COVID vaccine. Woman who died was wrongly diagnosed. A woman who died from unrecognised complications after having a COVID-19 vaccine was wrongly diagnosed with gastroenteritis, a coroner has said. The inquest heard that Michelle Barlow developed blood clots and died 16 days after having the AstraZeneca jab. Uh, senior coroner Timothy uh, Brennan said 51-year-old from or uh, oral Wigan may have received suboptimal care. Warrington, oh sorry, Wrighton, Wrightington uh, Wigan and Lee Teaching Hospital Trust said her treatment was, quote, in line with appropriate guidance, end quote. Um, and uh, one, one more along this line uh, from the Twitter feed of Right Said Fred, uh, highlighting uh, this, this uh, message from Gareth Eve to um, Sajid Javid. Uh, Gareth writes, it's going to be a great Christmas, quoting Javid. I wish that for everyone too. But for my young son without his mum, me without my wife, how about you give the families who've lost loved ones to the vaccine the gift of respect and compassion? Please acknowledge us. Thank you. And uh, I think that's a point extremely well made because 
they are being, the people who have been harmed, are being hidden. Their very presence is being denied on the BBC and in government circles hundreds of times every day. Um, a couple of other uh, items just to close off here. Part of the, um, uh, the, 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 the war on freedom is obviously the mask wearing, which is all about consent and sending a message. Uh, but here we see the BBC reporting the co-ops, the latest supermarket, uh, to not enforce mask wearing. Um, it says it will not enforce mask wearing rules to avoid their staff being abused by customers. Uh, mask rules were brought back on Tuesday after concerns about the Omicron um, variant. Supermarkets are taking a light touch approach. Tesco, Aldi, Lidl and Iceland are not challenging customers. An uh, industry body, the British Retail Consortium, said it's up to the police to enforce face mask rules, not retailers. Now, this is a win for all of the brave people who went into supermarkets, stood their ground, politely refused to be bullied, and videoed, often videoed the outcome and put it on, on, on YouTube and on social media so we could see how they were being treated. And everyone who either stayed away from supermarkets, took their trade elsewhere, or objected to the bullying that was going on, and it was horrendous bullying at the first lockdown. Um, this is a credit to them because they have won, and these supermarkets have decided they're not able to carry out this process a second time because they know the people will be ready for them and will not accept it. So they're saying it's over to you, to the, to the police. And we'll finish this section on a little video to show how well the police of dealing with the situation. Exempt. Right. I'm exempt, so I don't need a mask. She's telling me you're so exempt. So mind your business, yeah? yeah. Mind okay. your business. You so don't need to ask me I'm if I'm exempt. It's, it's your attitude. No, you don't need to ask me. It's, your it's not your business. What I'm going to do with you now, yeah? I'm going to ask you why you're exempt. In, in terms you don't of need to worry. It's my medical right. history. I'm not That's asking fine. your medical history. So don't worry. No, you won't. No, you won't. I'll be going. No, you won't. You don't even have your mask on properly. Look at this guy. Right. He's got his nose out and he's trying to right. tell me to wear a mask right. ordering a subway right. when right. I'm exempt for right. asthma. So right. mind your business. Listen to me. And let me go on my journey. So there you have it. Uh, he was under arrest for not wearing a mask, or was he under was he under arrest because of his attitude? It seemed to be the attitude that was the problem. And what was the attitude? The attitude was non-compliance. The attitude was not being licked and subservient. That attitude uh, no longer seems to be acceptable in the UK. Uh, David, thank you very much for that section. And of course, uh, while everything that you've been talking about is going on, um, inside government, we've got a very different set of standards. Now, many people have picked up on this BBC headline about the Downing Street Party. If we just pop that up on the screen, um, it says Downing Street Party number 10 staff joked about party amid lockdown restrictions. Now, remember, this is something that happened a year ago, uh, but it's uh, this uh, video clip we're about to see has been leaked. And this has caused a huge furore because now we get an insight into the sheer arrogance and contempt with which the public is regarded by Boris uh, Johnson, better known as uh, Pepper. Pepper Pig. Pepper Pig, yeah. indeed, yeah. So let's have a look at the clip and then discuss it. 
I've I'd... just seen reports on Twitter that there was a Downing Street Christmas party on Friday night. Do you recognise those reports? <laughs> I went home. <laughs> <laughs> hold on, hold on. Um, uh, uh... Would the Prime Minister condone uh, having a Christmas party? <laughs> What's the answer? I don't know. I didn't... What's the party? It was cheese and wine. Just be clear, it's not. <laughs> is cheese and wine all right? No. It's a business meeting. <laughs> I'm joking. This is recorded. This fictional party was a business meeting. And it was not socially distanced. Now, of course, what, what the BBC attempted to do in its article was say it was absolutely disgraceful that uh, uh, they were having a party inside uh, Westminster while everybody else was being locked down. Now, that was, a, that was effectively a true statement. But of course, the reality is, is what was going on there was you are seeing the uh, government's media team at work having a pre-briefing as to how ultimately they're going to close down any difficult questions about serious issues, which at that time we could have expected to be about people dying or vaccine adverse effects. So sheer and utter contempt by that uh, young lady and her team. And of course, they fall under the responsibility of the politicians and the civil servants themselves. So utterly disgraceful as they were giggling and laughing uh, let's move on to the reality that we're now in as a result of their failure to tell the truth to the public. Uh, let's have a look at this little clip by the Milton Keynes undertaker, John O'Looney, uh, which uh, was an update he gave just a little while ago. Hi, guys. Um, so just a quick update from me. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name's John. I'm a funeral director based in Milton Keynes. Um, uh, I run a, a funeral home called Milton Keynes Family Funeral Services. Uh, and a quick search uh, online for that um, will find me and verify who I am. So uh, many of you will know me. Um, so I'll just give you an update as to where we are at this time. And it is the 6th of December, um, 2021. So what we're seeing is a large number, an unnaturally large number of deaths due to heart attack, stroke, aneurysm, um, and these are all as a direct result of thrombosis, embolisms, um, in the lungs, the legs, various places um, uh, that's causing these deaths. Um, and these are well documented by the local coroners. These are well documented, um, you know, across the country. Nobody seems to be concerned by the alarming rise in them, you know. Um, I used to see a blood clot very, very rarely, um, and now I've seen more this year than I have in the previous 14, to give you an idea. I've written to the Chief Coroner of England, he isn't concerned. I've had no response for weeks and weeks, and then I had an email from his secretary saying um, he does, he's not interested. There you go, this is the guy who's supposed to be protecting us um, from, from, from harm. Um, so we're seeing those deaths. The other type of death that I'm seeing, which is more distressing for me personally, is people um, who are getting sick now as their immune systems um, finally give up. So they've had the jabs maybe six, eight months ago and uh, it's been eaten away at their immune system. And now they're struggling to fight off things like the common cold. So we're in winter, um, and as you'll be aware, there are colds and flus about in this time of the year. These people can't fight it off, and the government are very quick to label it um, Omicron, a new variant, you know, um, and they are sick. 
but they're sick with basic things like the common cold. Um, their immune systems are decimated and, and if you think about it logically, much like, um, for example, a cancer patient. So when you get a cancer patient and they're on chemotherapy, it decimates their immune system and one of the things um, that they have to be extremely careful of is because they've got no, no immune system, a basic cold, common cold or a flu can kill them. And this is what we're seeing now in um, the, these jab recipients uh, across up and down the country, they're becoming extremely ill, really, really ill. And, and the saddest thing is, is they're actually convinced that um, if they'd have had the jab, it would have, you know, lessened that illness. So, for example, I've got a couple of friends, I've known them for a long time, very intelligent guy, logical thinker, um, him and his wife uh, are both in jab. She's had one, he's had both. Um, he's bitterly desperate now he's desperate to get the booster because he feels so terribly ill he thinks that will make him feel better so a, re a really excellent update by john o'looney there but of course he's not alone as an undertaker there are many undertakers who are reporting the massive increase in deaths and the type of um, uh, uh, reaction that has been seen that's caused those deaths so we're very pleased to be able to put that clip up, but clearly he's feeling very, very stressed by what he's having to see. Let's contrast what he says as an undertaker with what a mother says her daughter, who is a midwife, is saying and experiencing within the NHS system. And the subject is stillbirths. Let's have a listen to this clip. Well, my daughter um, works in a, a very large hospital in the Southwest. And she's um, she's a she's a midwife, and she qu quite often has been coming home uh, when when she lived with me. She would come home uh, and uh, say that they've had another uh, full term stillbirth. Now she lived with me for a while, and then two months ago she moved out and lived somewhere else. Um, and I happened to meet her last weekend. And she was very upset, and I said, you know, what's the what's the problem? And just burst into tears and said, um, I've had to deal with yet another um, stillbirth, full-term stillbirth. And I said to her, well, are you dealing with a lot? Because you you seem to be talking about stillbirths quite a lot. And because she's she's very good with the bereavement side of things, she's done bereavement courses. They always use her to uh, go into the bereavement suite to help these women who've had these full-term stillbirths. And she said, yes, we're getting a, a huge amount of them, Mum. And I, I said, well, what, what, what are the doctors saying about this? Is anybody putting two and two together? And she said, well, the doctors are saying it's, it's to do with COVID, that COVID causes these, um, these stillbirths. And I said, well, if you think about it, why wasn't that happening last year? And she looked a bit blank and she said, I don't know. And she's very scared. She's very scared of speaking out. And she's saying, look, I have to accept what the doctors say. And I said, well, you know, you maybe you should be thinking about, you know, what you feel about all of this. Um, and she's had, she has had cases of women clotting during childbirth and babies clotting after birth and dying. Yeah, this is, um, this is quite an issue and none of it is coming out, none of it.
So David, uh, well, and for, for you, David, and the audience, there, there was more to that discussion, which we can't share because the key bit is their nurses scared, scared to speak out about what they're seeing, what they're experiencing. They daren't ask questions. They're worried about their job. So a climate of fear, we've got stillbirths, we've got abortions happening uh, within the NHS. We've got medical staff saying, we believe this is the result of vaccines. And let's remember when we, where we started in this segment, we have the BBC, uh, sorry, we have the uh, Conservative Party, the government's media team playing like children in front of the cameras, discussing how they're going to manipulate questions to stop the real information coming out. Just very briefly, uh, David, I find, uh, well, I'm lost for words as to how to describe what is happening through government. This is a vicious government we have in place. They're grabbing power. They are clearly happy to damage and injure and maim people, whether they're elderly or whether they're unborn children. The, the, the thing that's astonishing me is, is the all the government ministers are closed down. We're not talking to the press. We're in full panic mode. We've got people in Scotland, John Swinney, saying this is the worst thing he's ever seen in his political life, this, this video of the laughing and the joking. But the real issue, as we've just seen today, is we're, we're, we're inundated with data that, that shows the vaccines are not safe and not effective and still they're being pushed. Um, and that, this is causing suffering. This is causing... Um, this is causing uh, people to become disabled. This is causing death. And the, the mainstream media is not even talking about it. There's no crisis meeting at Downing Street about the vaccine efficacy or lack thereof or about the vaccine adverse reactions and fatalities. That's not the subject. The subject of the crisis meeting is how silly they looked when they were laughing and joking and looking hypocritical. Yeah, David, that, that's absolutely the point. If we just bring the uh, BBC slide back on screen. So the, the main argument was, is this one rule essentially for, for uh, Boris Johnson and another for the public farm animals? So we can have our parties, but the plebs are not going to be able to have parties and socialise with their loved ones. But the real issue is that that media team was rehearsing how they were going to fob off journalists asking important questions questions of the public. And then if we look at the clip as put out now, who edited this? This is a segment from that or a screenshot from that little video clip we've watched. So the footage is courtesy of ITV, uh, BBC label over the top of it. But the thing I noticed was that somebody has taken the trouble to blank out the faces of all of these media people who are literally behaving in such a disgraceful way. So we've got number 10 employees training to spin public awareness. They're going to make sure the public doesn't know what the truth is. And what happens, they get protected by having their faces blurred out. Uh, the BBC went on, of course, it's now on a roll. What next for Boris Johnson after the number 10 party video? But if you get in the article, they actually give you some truth. Run the government with chaos. And I'm going to suggest to our audience that the real agenda of this government is to break down and destroy the UK uh, in an increasing orgy of sickness and chaos. And this is orchestrated chaos. This is not incompetence of Peppa Pig. This is planned, orchestrated, malicious politics.
And uh, I think the public needs to be fully aware. Uh, so uh, just before we, we go to our advertising break, uh, we had uh, Boris on Prime Minister's questions this morning. Um, and he is saying that he understands and shares the anger of this uh, possible party that may not have happened. Uh, and uh, uh, at seeing number 10 staff seeming to make light of uh, lockdown measures, he said he was furious that the clip had got out. And it's basically what he said. I'm sure he is. Yeah, I'm sure he is. <laughs> uh, and he apologized unreservedly during Prime Minister's questions for the offense that the clip gave up and down the country, not the party, the clip. Um, so uh, he claims that uh, there was no party or in the sense that he's saying that uh, he's been repeatedly assured there was no party um, and that no COVID rules were broken. But he's asked the um, cabinet secretary uh, to uh, establish all the facts. So we're not going to establish all the facts over vaccinations, Mike. No. But we are going to establish the facts over a load of adult children mocking the public. Uh, well, yes. Uh, but of course, he's been denying this uh, party took place for what, two weeks now? Uh, but now he's decided to uh, ask the cabinet secretary to, uh, secretary to establish the facts. So he's been he's basically admitted that he's been lying up to this point. Um, and he said that if rules have been broken, there will be disciplinary action for all those involved. Uh, but what about uh, his misleading parliament, which he must have been doing and certainly misleading the public? Uh, because uh, he apparently needs the cabinet secretary to find out what the facts are because he doesn't know them. Uh, despite the fact that he's been claiming that he did know them. So anyway, that's uh, that's that. And uh, the, some people expecting uh, Boris to uh, introduce Plan B this afternoon uh, in order to try to divert uh, attention away from this nonsense. Yeah. Um, okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. And if you are watching the programme for free, uh, we do need your financial support if you possibly can manage it and uh, uh, any support very much appreciated. Um, also, please uh, check out uh, any material that you find on the various platforms and share it uh, as necessary. Now, uh, I don't have a graphic for it, unfortunately, because uh, we ran out of time uh, this afternoon. But uh, on Friday, uh, Friday evening, starting at 7 p.m., we will be doing a short uh, symposium with uh, Doctors for COVID Ethics. Um, and uh, have all the details uh, uh, out to people by email later on today. But uh, uh, if you're signed up to the UK column uh, mail list um, and, uh, and obviously on Friday as well. But uh, Michael Eden will be giving a presentation. You'll be involved in it, Brian, uh, and, uh, and a number of other fantastic uh, presentations. So uh, we'll give you the full details on Friday. But that will start at 7 p.m. on Friday evening. Excellent. Okay, well, moving on, very sad to have to announce the death of David Pidcock. Now, David Pidcock, uh, as an elderly gentleman, um, ha, ha, did a huge amount of campaigning um, to try and wake people up to the corruption and the fraud in the banking system. Uh, somebody sent this email through to us, which I'm going to read because I think is very poignant. David was a truly exceptional man. His belief in common sense money reform that would alleviate the suffering of all and which would rid the world of unlawful debt was something he was absolutely passionate about and which must be continued in his name. I only spoke to him three days ago, so I'm really feeling at a loss at this news. In my own small way, I pledge to keep the fight for real money reform going in his name. Along with Ken Palmerton, who sadly passed away last year, it was David who really acted as my mentor in my current campaign to wake up the British nation and the political class in particular in, understand, uh, in, in particular, 
to understanding the 1914 Treasury-issued debt-free and interest-free Bradbury Pound and how that could help solve Britain's woes under a criminal banking system. He was truly a wise man and a great campaigner. Now, many people who've been active in trying to highlight the corruption in the uh, world banking system over a great many years will certainly know of David Pidcock. And he's uh, a really um, excellent beacon for people to say, you can do a lot through your life and even into your later years. Just thought I'd put on screen some graphics which he used in a letter uh, about monetary reform to Peter Stan, the second clerk to the Treasury Committee, House of Commons. And uh, it says here in 1833, Robert Torrens MP led the London debate in Parliament for effective monetary policies and legislation, stating that unless our present system of currency were amended by the timely intervention of the legislature, it would go on to occasional periodical and aggravated distress until in a national bankruptcy it finds its own euthanasia, finds its euthanasia. 55 years later, in 1888, members of HM Treasury Bench were still facing exactly the same aggravated distress which Torrens had identified in 1833. And the graphic which followed that was 2018, 130 years on, but none the wiser or complicit gatekeepers holding Britain in hock to their rentier masters. And he also included this, uh, this uh, letter um, which was the UK government in 1978 admitting the power of the private unaccountable banking corporations. Uh, if we bring it on screen, so uh, it's headed Select Committee on Nationalised Industries. Dear Mrs Rankin, as promised, I enclose copies of the minutes of evidence taken on the 18th and 25th of January in the examination of the report and accounts 1976 to 77 of the Bank of England. You may perhaps wish to mention in replying to Mr. Swan that monetary policy and the management of mon the money market are activities of the Bank of England which are specifically excluded from the order of reference of the select committee. So um, what was being highlighted there was that, of course, the money markets carry on their business as private enterprise, uh, while it seems our uh, politicians and government simply follows their bidding. Okay, let's move on to uh, Russia. And well, yesterday, as we mentioned on Monday's program, uh, President uh, Biden and President Putin had a video conference meeting. Uh, if we can put that on screen, please, Stephanie. Thank you. And uh, well, there they are. And this is the uh, the Biden end of the meeting. Uh, he had to have his handlers in the room with him. Uh, Putin. He's, he's uh, not shocked that he's not wearing a mask there. Uh, well, because he's he, he has to be uh, you know has to be seen by the the uh, his counterparty, doesn't right. he? Uh, and this is uh, this is what it looked from Putin's end. Putin didn't need uh, handlers, it seems. Uh, he was quite capable of uh, running the thing on his own. Uh, but uh, what was the message that Biden was putting across? Uh, basically, do not invade, uh, do not invade Ukraine. There'll be strong economic and other measure, measures if Russia uh, invaded Ukraine. Uh, he now. The United States described this after after the fact as direct and straightforward conversation. The Kremlin said it was frank and businesslike. Uh, Russia, of course, said it had no intention of attacking Ukraine, uh, but he said that. Uh, uh, but Putin said, you know, Ukraine is being uh, used as a provocation. 
uh, and he also sought guarantees against eastward NATO expansion uh, and deployment of weapons close to Russia, uh, and uh, and so on. So uh, let's uh, have a look at, at this then. Uh, this, of course, is uh, the new German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz. Uh, Scholz. He, he is uh, signed in or became or inaugurated yesterday. Uh, uh, and uh, well, that's that's good news. Or is it? Uh, well, let's have a look at his uh, foreign minister, because, of course, this is another coalition. And uh, this is his foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, uh, and she's from the Green Party in Germany. Uh, and well, indeed, she hates Russia and China. So uh, she's going to be a good person for Germany to have. Uh, and, you know, one of the big issues, one of the big threats uh, was over Nord Stream. Uh, and uh, well, the question is, what is Germany's attitude going to be towards Nord Stream once this new government uh, this gets its uh, feet under the table. Uh, but who is this woman? Uh, well, she uh, belongs to the European Council on Foreign Relations, of course, uh, but possibly of more interest. Uh, she is a World Economic Forum young global leader. Well, there you right. have it. So there we go, yet another one put in place. Uh, and uh, we will see what uh, her reaction to Russia and China is over the uh, coming days and weeks, I think we know. Uh, but uh, also uh, yesterday, uh, we had Vicky Ford, the Minister of Africa in the House of Commons, uh, saying that Putin needs to de-escalate now. The UK is very clear. Any military incursion in, by Russia into Ukraine would be a strategic mistake. The Russian government should expect significant strategic consequences. The cost of an invasion would be catastrophically high. Uh, Liz Truss will host the Ukrainian foreign minister in London for the first UK-Ukraine strategic dialogue and echoing uh, Biden, who said, you know, basically, we don't, Biden doesn't pay any attention to anybody's red lines. Uh, and the red line, of course, as far as Putin is concerned, is uh, Ukraine joining NATO. Uh, so echoing uh, Biden's position, uh, representing the UK government, Vicky Ford said in Parliament, the UK remains firm on its support for Ukraine's accession to NATO. Oh. What's she's obviously a heavyweight, isn't she? That's why she's been brought forward by what's what stirred up the minister for Africa to be warning off Putin? Well, she well, she was uh, answering questions in, in the Commons, but but uh, uh, and really just reiterating uh, the UK's stated position. So I don't know what your thoughts are on this, uh, David, but, uh, you know, I've said this to, to Alex a couple of times uh, and to Patrick. Um, Putin is justified, no matter what you think of Putin himself, he's justified in the position that, is, that he is taking. Uh, the, the Russians, as the Soviet Union and then subsequently as Russia, were promised on many occasions that, that there would be no uh, incursion eastwards by NATO. And that has been, that promise has been broken. Uh, and uh, it's completely understandable that Putin is taking the position on Ukraine with respect to membership of, membership of NATO. But we basically uh, stick our fingers up at that and uh, and say we remain firm in our support for Ukraine's accession to NATO. And remember what Theresa May said. Um, we, we were uh, unreservedly committed to the defence of um, the Eastern Partnership areas, which includes Ukraine, against Russian uh, aggression. So, you know, we appear to be extending already uh, the sort of guarantees that's involved in NATO membership, even without NATO membership, um, it strikes me we've got we've got uh, threats of huge economic sanctions. We've got calls to de-escalate without any 
detail as to what that actually means. And we've got a determination to um, to bring the Ukraine into NATO, which would put um, American and German troops in Kiev and missiles yes. and aircraft, which is going to be utterly unacceptable to Russia. Um, there doesn't seem to be any recognition that Russia has a, a valid viewpoint at all. They're not being allowed a valid viewpoint. They've been told their valid viewpoint is simply saber-rattling. Um, it looks to me like an attempt to spark a war. That's how it looks to me as well. I don't know what you think. Well, the other thing I think is significant, of course, all of this rhetoric with Russia uh, is being wound up while we have utter chaos uh, appearing in UK over vaccines and lockdown, parliaments not working properly. So who is making all the decisions? Is, is there any discussion in in Parliament, is your local MP being involved in a discussion over the rhetoric over Russia? No. So we've already got the coup has already taken place, David. Who is running UK at the moment is one question. The second question is who is holding them accountable? And just to uh, confirm what Theresa May said in 2017, uh, we must be open-eyed to the actions of hostile states like Russia which threaten this potential, the potential of the Eastern uh, Partnership areas, an attempt to, stay, to tear our collective strength apart. So we have collective strength with the Ukraine. That means that uh, for all practical purposes, um, we are bound to bleed and die with them. Uh, well, this is a very good uh, question. Uh, are we bound to bleed and die with them or are we going to get other people to bleed and die on our behalf? But anyway, let's have a look at uh, at this from Rusi, uh, because also yesterday uh, we had the annual Chief of Defence Staff Lecture 2021. Now, of course, we've got a new Chief of Defence Staff, head of the British military. Um, and uh, so Admiral Sir Tony Radican uh, was hosting or was holding his first uh, uh, lecture, as it were. So let's have a look at what he had to say. Uh, Russia's behavior is a threat to our values and interests. Iran could soon join North Korea as posing a nuclear and ballistic missile threat to the UK and our allies. Uh, and China is challenging international norms of behavior, whether freedom of navigation, economic intimidation, or wolf warrior diplomacy. Uh, that's his position. Um, and uh, so we now know who our enemies are. Well, I find this incredible. He's, he's not brought into Parliament to talk to the MPs to explain what's in his head. He goes to Rusi as a private organisation. And what is he doing? He's talking politics. It never used to be the job of military officers to talk politics. Their job was to do the defence and the military side. So this man is sort of a Tony Blair in uniform, in my opinion. And if you look at his qualifications, to be chief of the defence staff, he simply hasn't got any, uh, unless, unless unless his job is political, in which case he's admirably suited. Uh, admirably suited, indeed. Yes. Okay, okay. Let's uh, let's move on with it then. Our response to these challenges and risks lies uh, at the heart of the integrated review. It confirms the need to deter and defend against state-based opponents, to strengthen our technological and scientific base and modernize every aspect of our armed forces. But let's not forget that the key part of the integrated review was the notion that we are moving from a defensive position to an offensive position. Um, and I think we're seeing that in all the language and the rhetoric that's been used in the past several months. 
Uh, the rest of the world sees us, this is the UK for who we are, a permanent member of the UN Security Council, a nuclear power, a trading power, the world's fifth largest economy, a strong, powerful country, but outward looking, cooperative and generous too. The country that has cut carbon emissions faster than any other, one of the largest donors of overseas aid, a science and education superpower. Uh, is that how you see, uh, uh, sorry, David, is that is that how you see other countries seeing us? No, um, I, I think, uh, well, they, they might well recognize the carbon, but what they're not seeing is a productive um, superpower they're not seeing someone uh, they're not seeing a country that's that's dealing with rationality either uh, they're seeing something that's very strangely and oddly led and uh, part of the the mush that is now the the, the western complex uh, centered on the un international and in scope international in in approach so that the the decisions are not being made locally and increasingly, the, the decisions are not being made with any with any logic or reason. Um, so let's move on with it then. Uh, one thing our competitors lack is the one thing we have in riches: real friends all around the world who share our interests and values. Try not to laugh. Uh, NATO, Five Eyes, AUKUS, the Joint Expeditionary Force, the Commonwealth, the Five Powers Defence Arrangements, and with France, uh, the combined. Uh, expeditionary force and then there's our people he said uh, he said but the simple demarcation of peace of, of, of peace and war is less prevalent today uh, this echoes what his predecessor said uh, and also uh, Mark Carlton Smith uh, the chief of the uh, uh, chief of the army uh, head of the army at that army, stage yes, yeah. uh, said that basically peace and war are no longer binary states uh, so he went on to say our forces need to be out in the world supporting British interests, deterring and shaping on a continuing basis because we're in permanent, state of permanent warfare uh, at the moment. Uh, General Nick Carter was uh, eloquent about the need to sunset some capabilities in order to focus on better sunrises. Uh, let me also pay tribute to him uh, for his work to drive a more integrated defence uh, that embraces cyber and space and within NATO for an updated strategy to meet emerging risks. Mike, this, this man is, is meeting uh, climate change um, CO2 targets because he's got type 45 destroyers that can't get to sea. That's how he's protecting the uh, globe at the moment. And for, for, for him to talk about, we're now going to be operating in space. What, this man is taking something. I don't know what it is, but he's clearly not in the real world. I think that's right. So let's move on with it. Uh, we have the opportunity to unlock the potential of UK armed forces to be more deployable and more effective, to modernise, to be more lethal and to be more diverse uh, and to uh, become global forces for global Britain. I, sorry, I did actually miss a bit because when he mentioned uh, our people, uh, what, he, what was he talking about? Uh, he was talking about striving to do better uh, in every aspect of our leadership. That includes reflecting the diverse nation we serve, because if we don't, then quite simply we, look, we risk looking ridiculous. Uh, this is not about wokeness. This is, not about, this is about woefulness, the woefulness of too few women, the woefulness of not reflecting the ethnic, religious 
and cognitive di diversity of our nation and the woefulness of not following our own values, whether respect for each other or the simple integrity of claiming expenses. Uh, I'm not quite sure what that means. Uh, this affects our culture, our fighting power, our prowess. Uh, it's not an army thing or a navy thing. It's a challenge to the whole of defense. Uh, but of course, becoming more diverse makes us more lethal. If Alex um, Thompson were with us, he would be saying this is word soup. This is this actually gives you an indication of what's in the man's head, a soup of language that that is meaningless. I notice that he doesn't wear his combat gear for Rusi. He dresses up in a, oh, yes. in all his gold braid and glory for Rusi. But for the BBC or talking to the public, he's there in pretty cra crabby combat gear. Um, right. And uh, sorry, David, just to finish this defence segment off then, uh, this is another Rusi event which is taking place next Wednesday. Uh, is the EU better placed than NATO to provide effective European security? Uh, and this, of course, a very important question. It's one that we have been trying to uh, highlight for quite a long time. Uh, and there is no question, it seems, that with uh, NATO 2030, there is a, a move in terms of what NATO's role is going to be towards the South China Sea and away from the EU. And as Alex was pointing out uh, uh, over the last uh, week or two, uh, we see movements on the uh, European side uh, to, to effectively replace the role of NATO to a certain degree. Uh, yes, yes, this is this is the thing. Um, I, I just have to say I'm absolutely thrilled by his uh, by, by Radican's en entry into the world of stand-up comedy. Uh, General Sir Nick Carter was eloquent. I thought that was the five funniest words I've heard in a very long time. Yes, indeed. Okay, let's. Uh, if, uh, we're, we're, we're tight let's for time. Can we go on to the science section, Mike? Then we'll cover the Scotland pieces in uh, extra time. Okay. Okay. And as we always say, this is tremendous flexibility of the UK column news, which you will never see in the BBC. <laughs> okay, we're ready. Okay, right. So um, I was wanting a, a little look at the problems in the wonderful world of science, because we're always saying we must follow the science. Science is a new religion. Science is the very definition of truth. Well, let's just have a little look at what the BBC uh, is currently putting forward as cutting edge science. Okay, so uh, we, first of all, we have uh, sentient fungus. Or are you wanting to show the video clip? Hey, could, we, could we show the video clip if you could? Yes, yes thanks. The search for alien life in the universe is one of the most intriguing quests of our time. From UFOs to little green aliens to the possibility of life in the underground aquifers of Mars, there's no end to speculation as to what form this life could take and how it could have developed. There's even a raft of videos on the internet speculating that aliens must have visited ancient civilizations on Earth. Because otherwise, how else could the Mayans have built their incredible temples? Spoiler, there is no evidence at all for this, and frankly, if I was a Mayan stone worker from 250 AD, I would find it deeply insulting. But a more interesting theory, and one which has more credibility, is that of panspermia. That life exists throughout the universe and can be transported through space from one location 
to another. Although it's certainly not proven, a team of prominent scientists from MIT and Harvard have been working on the theory that some form of life was actually delivered to Mars in this way. Is that possible? <laughs> so, pan, uh, panspermia. This was, this was um, uh, out there on the edge of reality, uh, kind of uh, quirky, oddball uh, notions uh, in, in the scientific world until recently. No, apparently now it's been pushed by uh, Brian Cox on the BBC. Um, and the reason why is, of course, the origin of life research has got 80, 90 years of total failure. More on that story in extra time. Um, now, next here we've got uh, Haritz uh, reporting on uh, where did all the water come from? You see, uh, there's a bit of a problem with, um, with the Earth. You see, uh, the official mainstream explanation as to how the Earth formed it says there can be no water here. There is no water on Earth. Now, I know what you're thinking. There's rather a lot of water. It keeps falling out of the sky. This is Britain. We have plenty of water. Um, so where did the water come from? Um, so uh, Harris goes on, according to one theory, uh, in the origin of the Earth's water, it was formed uh, here after water-rich comets collided with the planet. But it turns out that the isotopes in the water in comets is very different from the water on Earth, meaning they can't be the main source of the water. And Harris goes on says that, to say that uh, researchers in the University of Glasgow in Scotland and Curtin University in Australia are suggesting a possible source for the light uh, of the light water is a rarer type of asteroid, the S-type, which contains silicates, stony minerals. Such asteroids such asteroids don't, don't have naturally occurring water, but researchers suggest a reaction between grains of dust on them and solar winds from the solar system, uh, when the solar system was formed, uh, created the light water in these types of asteroids. This is rampant speculation to cover the fact that they don't have a theory of solar system formation. They don't actually have a theory of star formation because it relies on there being other stars uh, before the stars are formed. So you see how deeply uh, unscientific a lot of the science is. And this is the background for, for the science that's making public policy. Here we see in, in, in the wonderful world of global warming, uh, we see here the graph uh, showing a steady rise, the pink line here, steady rise in CO2, up 15% extra CO2 over the piece, so it's marching ever upwards, and the uh, global temperature is flatlining, right? No global warming this century. It's just not happening, right? But we're still pushing the, the policy agenda. We're still saying the science is settled because the science is now so fundamentally uncertain of what truth means, that it can no longer speak accurately about it would appear very much. Um, here we have, uh, next slide here is the Berents Observer. Uh, Ice-locked Arctic towns might not get the needed supplies. Um, transpires that there's, there's a great deal of ice in the Arctic. It's uh, grown very much more rapidly than anticipated this year. And uh, the ships are not able to get through. They're heading back to Archangel and some very remote outposts are, are going to be very short of supplies because there's too much ice. Um, and we all know that uh, global warming is going to generate huge sea level rise and we're all going to disappear under the water. And the first thing that's going to go 
Uh, that's going to be the Maldives. We're all certain that's that's uh, that's already baked in. So here we have um, an abstract from a technical paper, Global Scale Changes in the Area of Atoll Islands During the 21st Century. Uh, it reads, the long-term persistence of atoll islands is under threat due to continued sea level rise driven by isobogenic uh, climate change. Um, and it goes on then to describe how there's not much data, but they've, they've actually done uh, a, a large survey uh, using global satellite information, and they've found the results show that between 2000 and 2017, the total land area of these atolls has increased by 61.74 square kilometres, or 6.1%. Um, and uh, the Maldives have had an extra 37.5 square kilometres of land added to them. So all the things we've been told about, all these islands are going to disappear, that's not true either. Uh, and just to finish this section, we have Babylon B, a satirical site here, uh, saying that Hitler proclaims anyone who attacks him is attacking science. Berlin, in an interview with CBS News, German Chancellor Adolf Hitler declared that anyone who attacks him or his methods is really attacking science itself. Quote, why do you think these mean, angry people are attacking you with all these nasty words, says the starstruck CBS interviewer. Is it because they are dumb and stupid and don't understand your brilliance? Hitler replies, it's clear why people are attacking me. Um, they hate science. The science of Darwinian evolution and eugenics as an effective me mechanism for the betterment of human humankind is completely undisputed. The science is settled. It is clear what motivates the people who question my methods. They are just anti-science bigots. The CBS interviewer nodded solemnly in agreement. Mm, anti-science bigots. So true. Experts confirm that eugenics is supported by peer-reviewed scientific research and that every major scientific institution in the early 20th century currently endorses it as the most scientific path forward for mankind. And wasn't that true as well? Yeah, the evidence is, is there in front of us if we choose to look for it and read it. Yeah. Well, look, uh, we're, we're absolutely out of time. Uh, so, David, we'll just do one of the final slides, which is the final slide. The, um, the final, final slide, yes. Yes, so if we can bring that one up, Stephanie, please, thank you. And it's, uh, well, it's Scrooge, I guess, uh, looking out the window saying, you boy, what variant is this? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did like that one. <laughs> yeah. Okay, David, we're going to thank you for ending on a serious um, stroke uh, humorous note because uh, that's been a, a particularly... Uh, heavy UK column news, a lot of factual information, which is very serious, uh, but at least we've ended with a smile. So thank you very much for that. A very big thank you to all of our supporters and overseas supporters uh, who have been emailing us and sending us Christmas cards, thanking us for what we do. Um, thank you for doing that. It is a big boost to us. And I'd just like to say again that probably for 2022, uh, spring is going to be the uh, spring assault by the government. So if you like what UK Column is doing, uh, you want us to expand, which is what we would like, we're going to say, please uh, sign up and subscribe. If you're watching for free, you can help us expand by becoming a paid up member. So we hope you will do that. And uh, thanks to everybody for joining us today. Uh, we'll have some extra on the main live stream uh, in a couple of minutes. So hang on for that. And otherwise, we'll see you as usual, 1 p.m. on Friday. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.